In our first session, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and the, the goal, the topic that we're going to start off with in this seminar on praying for the sick and the working of miracles and evangelism is, uh, are, is it scriptural, is it biblical to believe that God wants to manifest the power of the kingdom of heaven today? Does he want to manifest that power in healing the sick? What role does healing the sick and praying for miracles have in evangelism? And again, as I said before, in light of the massive amount of material and questions that people have concerning praying for the sick, and it's, we're obviously not going to cover everything in one day. If I do three sessions today, it obviously is not going to cover every question that people have. So today we're going to focus on the idea of miracles and outreach, evangelism and healing. And that's going to be our focus. So we're not discussing today is healing guaranteed in the atonement. We're not discussing today is God obligated to respond to faith. Can we demand from God what we want him to do? We're not going to discuss those topics. We're not going to discuss the topic of why some people are not healed. Is it a lack of faith? Is it sin in their lives? Or is that all condemnation that we shouldn't be putting on people? Uh, we won't be discussing that. Our topic for this particular day in all the three sessions we want to do today is focusing on the validity of doing this and the focus is what does it mean for outreach and evangelism. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 8, let's put these words. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. To me, those are some of the most obvious verses you'll ever find in Scripture that make the statement that the gifts of the Spirit are to be practiced from the ascension of Jesus until Jesus returns. And in terum, all the gifts of the Spirit should be functioning within that whole period of time. How do we explain the lack of it? Well, we'll probably get into a little bit of that today and why the church in the Middle Ages did away with it. We'll look at that a little bit today as well. But when we consider this topic in today's society, um, people are somewhat shy of the gifts of the Spirit, the demonstration of the power for a couple of reasons. A lot of people have been traumatized by the observance of absolute foolishness. 
There has been so many bad things happen and bad examples that people tend to say, I'm going to hold all of this at arm's length. And even if I want to believe it, I'm going to distance myself from it emotionally because I really don't want to embrace some of the stupidity. And also, there has been, and I'm speaking as a teacher here, there has been some very, very poor, and I mean really poor, teaching. There has been poor teaching that has denied the existence of the gifts of the Spirit, and then there has been very, very poor teaching for those who say, well, let's go for it, but some of the things that they come up with and some of their doctrines and excesses that they have are just way outside the boundaries of Scripture. And extremes have existed on both ends. There have been churches that have been very, very dry, where there is never any expression of the things of the Spirit, even Pentecostals with a small p want to shy away from a lot of these things. On the other hand, there's a lot of utter stupidity and there's a lot of carnal excesses that are out there as well. However, in spite of those extremes that are out there, the Bible says what the Bible says. Amen? In spite of the extremes that are out there, and there is a thirst and there is an appetite for people to have real and genuine encounters with the Almighty, with the living God. Amen. And the task that is before me, speaking as a teacher, the task that is before me is to realize that the path in front of us is strewn with all kind of debris and opinions and, and comments and all that. And the path before me as a teacher is how do I clear the path of all this debris and find out what the Bible actually says without coming to the Scripture with any preconceived bias as what to expect. When it comes to the subject of healing and praying for the sick, people come with all kinds of prejudice and all kinds of desires. And a lot of people want the Bible to say something, whether it says it or not. They really want it to say that. They want to say that I'll never be sick, I'll never suffer. They want to say all kinds of things. And people come with an agenda to the Scripture and don't allow the Scripture to speak on its own uh, grounds. Now, in many churches, you hear this word uh, cessationism. Now, when you hear that word, if you're a cessationist, or if you believe in cessationism, what you believe is this. You believe that any open manifestation or display of the power of God is not for today. That is the position of a cessationist. You would believe, if you were a cessationist, you would believe that that kind of activity that you read about in the Gospels and you read about in the book of Acts and you might hear comments of it in the epistles of the New Testament, that that was only given to the original apostles and it was to provide them with authenticity and credibility so they could write the scriptures. Now, once the scriptures have been completed in the form of the New Testament, then there is no more need for such manifestations. And that would be the position of what we call a cessationist. Okay, that became doctrine that was embedded in the church, and we'll look at that. That became doctrine 
in the history of the church during the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformers solidified that in their way of thinking and passed it on to generations after generations beyond that. It became almost an official doctrine at that time of the Reformation. Uh, that's what a cessationist would believe. The opposite term, if you want to, that, that people use, if you're not a cessationist, you are a continuist. That's the word that is used, a continuist. If you are a continuist, then it's your position that the gifts of the Spirit are valid, and not only are they valid, but they are needed today as well. So you're in one camp or the other. Either you're a cessationist or you are a continuist. Well, you have no problem knowing what camp I'm in, for sure, and I don't think I have any problem knowing what camp you would be in. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here this morning. Uh, we are continuists. We yearn for, seek, covet the things of the Spirit of God because I am, we are convinced that the way forward in evangelism is to see the restoration of Pentecost to the church. Amen? That's our conviction. But there's other people who have that conviction also that are very poor exegetes of Scripture and really have confused the issue on a lot of things, so much so that it makes Pentecostal experience abhorrent to a lot of people simply by the excesses or the behaviors of people that are involved. Our goal is to try to find the right path. These verses that we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 teach that when Paul the Apostle brought the gospel to the city of Corinth. And I believe you can read about that in Acts chapter 18, if my memory serves me right. And if my memory serves me right, he was in the city of Corinth for a space of 18 months. A year and a half he was there. He got it tough in the city of Corinth. There was lots of persecution. There were physical beatings. There was a lot of opposition there, and the Lord appeared to him in a vision, in a dream in the night, and he said, Be encouraged, Paul, I have many people in this city. And he continued in spite of the fierce opposition for a period of 18 months. If my memory serves me correctly, uh, in that city of, I hope I get this right, it was a massive city that in 18 months, 10% of the city was converted. Secular sources, would, you won't find that in the Bible, but secular sources would tell you that. And I, I might be wrong, but it's 60,000 people out of 600,000 were converted in the space of 18 months. How many would like to see 60,000 salvations in the next 18 months? I mean, we're talking something dramatic here. This is not small. This is not gradual growth. This, this is dynamic explosion. And when we're talking about the gifts of the Spirit, we're not talking about gradualism. We're talking about explosive, dynamic activity. We usually shall receive power. That word power is dunamis. And that word dunamis is, you know, where you get our word dynamite from. It's explosive. It is, it is awe-inspiring. It demands attention from people. It brings dynamic 
growth. Uh, if you see any any revival evangelist or what we call a healing evangelist, and if you've ever read their life stories, people who were definitely called to preach and to pray for the sick, they got crowds. They got lots of crowds. And they got lots of converts. Indeed. These verses in 1 Corinthians 1 show that when Paul preached the gospel to them, he did not depend upon natural wisdom. He did not depend on natural eloquence. He did not depend on his education. He would say when the gospel was preached, there was such an activity of the grace of God to you Corinthians that the result was you were enriched. And that's, that's, that's an important word, that word enriched. You were enriched. You want your life enriched. It's come the gifts of the Spirit enrich you. You were enriched in all kinds of utterance. And that is a reference to the speaking gifts, probably tongues, interpretation, probably prophecy, and all knowledge. It says you, you come behind, you were lacking in no gift. There was no shortage. When the gospel was preached to that Corinthians, there was absolutely no shortage of the miraculous, explosive, dynamic activity of the Holy Spirit in that city. Uh, if you go to chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians and just read verses 1 to 5, he describes how he went to Corinth. He says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I didn't come with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. Now, Paul was a learned man. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had a great education. He had a sharp mind. Anybody could put together a sermon, that man could do it. But he says, I didn't come trusting in natural eloquence or natural skill. I made a determination in verse 2 that I'm not going to know anything among you. I'm not going to come preach anything among you except one thing. And that's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In verse 3 he says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. In other words, I dare not trust my own abilities. I dare not trust my own abilities. Verse 4, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. Now, I want you just, I'm not going to focus on this, but just for a moment, say, take, take the word man's out of that phrase. And he says, enticing with words of wisdom. The word of wisdom is a gift of the Spirit. And he says, I didn't come with the words of man's wisdom. But he did come in the word of wisdom. And my conviction is that the word of wisdom that's listed as one of the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 is the first of the nine gifts that he enumerates in 1 Corinthians 12. That the word of wisdom is a dynamic preaching ability that comes as a gifting and divine enabling of the Holy Spirit. That the word of wisdom is able to cause you to speak and there's something about what you share that grabs the conscience, the heart of the person that's listening to you, and that person is enabled to see themselves in the light of God. And that can do what hours and hours and hours and weeks and months of human reasoning could never do. We need the Spirit of God to shine light in the hearts of unbelievers. And it's my conviction 
that the word of wisdom is an evangelistic gift that does exactly that. It causes the unbeliever to be struck with the reality of spiritual things. And they begin to see themselves as God sees them. And the result is they encounter God. They don't come to the Lord because somebody arm wrestled with them over logic, human reasoning. They come to the Lord because they were encountered by the Spirit of God as they heard the message. That's what I believe a word of wisdom is. So Paul would say in chapter 2, 4, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but my speech and my preaching came in the demonstration of the Spirit. My message was the gift of the Spirit in operation. My speaking was the Holy Spirit in operation. I came in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And that's where you see Paul the Apostle, when he asked for prayer, pray for me that utterance may be given me. For Ephesians chapter 6. Now why does he pray for utterance to be given him? Because he knows that preaching is not a a man-made ability. Preaching in the Holy Ghost is a gift from God. And so pray that utterance may be given me so that when I speak, it's the Spirit speaking. I think Peter, if I, I think it's First Peter chapter 1.12, he says, Who preached the gospel to you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Preached with the Holy Ghost being sent down from heaven. So Paul's preaching was a demonstration of the Spirit, a demonstration of the power of God. This was not natural talent. This was an operation of the Spirit of God flowing through the man. Verse 5 of chapter 2 says, Why? So that your faith would never stand in the wisdom of God, but your faith is a result of an encounter with the power of God. That's important. That your faith is the result of an encounter with the power of God. It's no secret for me to say this because I've said this so many times is that in conversions, people need to meet God. Not just say a prayer. They need to encounter and meet God. And Paul says when he went to the city of Corinth, that's how he went. You can find a reference in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 12, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, where Paul again would make a reference that when his, uh, his, his ministry in that church at Corinth. And he says, Truly, all the signs of the apostle were there with signs and wonders. And so though it doesn't tell us a lot within Acts chapter 18 of the activity, it does say that Paul had this vision from God. Hang in there. I've got a lot of people. But as you glean out of 1 Corinthians and glean out of 2 Corinthians, the fact is, the result of preaching the gospel as a word of wisdom in the power of the Spirit, in the demonstration of the Spirit, with signs and with wonders, the result was that that church was enriched in all utterance and enriched in all knowledge so that he could say, as he writes this epistle, 1 Corinthians, that you come behind in no manifestation and no gift. Lord, may it be. Amen? Lord, may it be. One of the words I want to 
emphasize in chapter 1 and verse number 6 and again in verse number 8 is the word confirmed. It says, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. What's confirmation? If you're going to confirm something, what does that mean? It means the second witness coming in. It means to strengthen what has been said. And he was saying, the gifts of the Spirit is the testimony of the validity of what I'm telling you. When people are healed and demons are cast out, that is testimony, that's proof, that's confirmation that the message about Jesus is real. And that's what this word is saying. Now, the Corinthians, as you well know, had greatly erred uh, in their understanding of what the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit are. And you don't have to read in through 1 Corinthians very much until you realize this seems to be one messed up church. They had the presence of the gifts of the Spirit, but they were carnal, they were fleshly, they had got into all sorts of theological nonsense about marriage and, and a lot of things. But because they had this activity of the supernatural Holy Spirit with utterances and with words of knowledge and, and words of wisdom, and however they interpret all of those kinds of things, because they were so abundant and lavish in all these experiences, uh, they thought that they were very spiritual, though they ignored walking in love, though they rejected the resurrection of the body to come, and they assumed that because they spoke with tongues that they were already in some sort of angelic existence, though I speak with the tongues of angels. And because I'm already equal to angels, then that went from one error to another. Well, angels don't marry, so I guess I don't need to marry and there was splitting of parts of families over this whole issue and it was just, Paul has a mess on his hands and that basically that's why he writes 1 Corinthians is to clean up all of their wrong suppositions their wrong conclusions because of the presence of all the charismata in their midst they had just come all sorts of nonsensical uh, beliefs but what I find interesting Though the gifts of the Spirit led to abuses and it led to excesses and carnal thoughts, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 still gives thanks for the gifts of the Spirit. And I want us to catch that. He's correcting abuses, but just because they have erred in their understanding of the gifts of the Spirit, Paul does not discard them the tendency of a lot of people is I'm going to really keep this at arm's length the answer is not to discard them the answer is teaching amen not to discard them because why take the hammer out of the hands of the carpenter that's the tool you get the job done and just because some people have demolished with their hammer doesn't mean you take the hammer away. Is that not correct? Because that's his tool. That's the tool that he needs. According to these verses in chapter 1, verse 7, verse 8, 
that the gifts of the Spirit plainly stated that they are there until the return and the appearing of the Lord Jesus. And until that happens, until the Lord comes, we need the Holy Spirit to affirm and to confirm and to strengthen and to teach us and to lead us and to guide us. And the gifts of the Spirit are the expression of how God wants to lead the church. Very, very straightforward statement. He's filled with grief, Paul is, as he writes all of this. Um, His habit is always to begin a letter with thanksgiving. And in that thanksgiving, he usually itemizes things in his thanksgiving that he's going to bring up later in the epistle. Here he's thankful that the Corinthians were enriched with all kinds of spiritual gifts. He refers especially to the gifts of speech, utterance, and gifts of knowledge, not because they were the only manifestations, but because as you read through the rest of this epistle, they seem to be the ones with which the Corinthians were overly fascinated with, and they tended to, to see these gifts outside their proper context. I repeat, Paul is not going to domesticate the gifts, and he's not going to tone them down. He's not going to eliminate that which is troublesome. But instead, he's going to take the hard road of confrontation, teaching, and correction. Did you catch that? He's going to do the hard road of confrontation, teaching, and correction. And that takes character to do that because sometimes it's easier I'm just going to walk away from this because this is overwhelming. There's just too much stupidity going on. There's too much and people don't want to hear teaching. They don't want to be corrected. And no confrontation, correction, and teaching. And get this in proper context. So even though the gifts were being abused, one of the things that I get out of these verses in chapter 1, verses 4 to 8, is this. Even though they were abused, Paul appreciates the gifts of the Spirit. And he also recognizes these gifts have come from God, and because they are gifts that have come from God himself, they are not to be discarded, and they are not to be denied, and they are not to be put on a back shelf, no matter how much people have abused them. These are divine enrichments from God, and I am thankful for the presence of the gifts Paul says, even though you made a mess of it. I'm still thankful for the gifts. In these verses, in chapter 1, verses 4 to 8, some of the things that we will note is that in Paul's heart, Christ is still central. The Holy Spirit hasn't dethroned Christ. Christ is still central. In verse 4, when he talks about grace, you know, you have for the grace of God given to you by Jesus Christ. When he talks about the grace of God given to you, is he referring to, oh, you were saved, you said a sinner's prayer. No, verse 5 tells you how they were graced. The grace of God is you were enriched. I like that word enriched. Anybody want to be rich? You know, enriched. In all utterance, enriched in all utterance. This is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is His divine graciousness offering Himself to you in these gifts. So they come from the hand of Christ. Christ is still the center. They testify and they confirm the message of Christ. 
And the gifts are needed until Christ returns. It's all about Christ. The presence of the gifts were the result of God's gracious activity towards them. They were enriched by the presence of spiritual gifts and they were genuinely empowered and they were genuinely endued because of the presence of the gifts of the Spirit. Paul played a crucial role in their experience as we've already mentioned, 1 Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul would say that the gospel came to them with powerful demonstration. If my memory is right, and I hope it is, 60,000 people out of 600,000 in 18 months. Lord, do it again. Lord, do it again. And verses 7 and verse 8 says specifically that the gifts belong to this present time until the consummation of the appearing of Christ yet to come. The Corinthians had an abundant experience of the gifts. They were not lacking in any kind of manifestation. All kinds of spirit utterance and knowledge were given to them. And Paul in his discussions through this epistle is going to focus on certain gifts passing by others in the discussion because he's going to deal with the ones that they were fascinated with and deal with the ones that um, caused trouble in particular. As I said earlier, they had erroneously thought, according to chapter 13 and verse 1, that speaking in tongues made them equal to angels. And that spawned all sorts of difficult errors uh, as well. The Corinthians were consumed with the fact that they had gifts of the Spirit in their midst. But Paul's attitude was not so taken up with the presence of spiritual gifts, but Paul's attitude was more taken up with this thought, isn't God gracious? Isn't God gracious? Instead of being thrilled, oh, I laid hands on somebody and they fell on the ground, or I laid hands on somebody and they were, they were healed, oh, wow, and people were taken up with that. Paul's attitude wasn't like that. Paul's attitude was, isn't God gracious? And the emphasis needs to be, on, in, in these opening verses in 1 Corinthians, the emphasis needs to be on the gracious activity of God. This is the grace of God. You're enriched with all spiritual gifts. This is the grace of God. Sick people are being healed. This is the grace of God. You have ability to pray supernaturally. This is the grace of God. You had discernment over an issue. That's the grace of God. Where we want to be excited about the gift, Paul was more excited about, isn't God gracious? And, and, and that's the, the attitude which he comes to. Since every gift is undeserved. I'm going to emphasize that. Every gift is undeserved. The Greek word is charisma. The word chariz is, is grace. Nobody gets anything because they deserve it. How many are glad for that or we get nothing? Nobody gets a grace because they deserve it. It is a portion of grace. And since they come to you very undeservingly, there is no ground for boasting. And that's a point he will make in chapter 4 and verse 7. There's no ground for boasting. Does God use you to heal the sick? And there are outstanding miracles take place when you lay hands upon people. Is that, well, 
what a mighty man of God I must be. Excuse me. This is grace. This is pure grace. There is no room for boasting. Amen. There's no room for boasting. And Paul will make the point, which is not our topic today, but we'll mention it. He'll make the point that without the corresponding fruit of the Spirit, without love and without character, the gifts of the Spirit will only tend to puff people up and make them proud. 1 Corinthians 8, 1, knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies. We have to see that the power of God, this gracious dynamic ability of God, the power of God, is just to be an expression of the compassion of God. It's to be an expression of the love of God. And instead of saying, oh, somebody was healed when I prayed for them. Wow, I must have a gift, you know. Well, yeah, but you know what? It's better to say, did you see the love of God in action there? Did you see the grace of God? And the emphasis has got to be on the graciousness of God. And let's learn to see the gifts of the Spirit in terms of the graciousness of God. You heard me taught much, and I will teach more on it again about the kingdom of heaven. The message that Jesus brought was the kingdom of heaven has arrived. The difficult difficulty that a lot of people have is, well, the kingdom of heaven has arrived, that means there should be no sickness ever. Because there's no sickness in heaven, there should be no sickness on earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The problem with that reasoning is it fails to see what most scholars now agree on, believe in wholeheartedly, is that salvation is already but not yet. The kingdom of heaven has been inaugurated, but the kingdom of heaven has not reached the point of consummation yet. Jesus hasn't yet returned and yet appeared the second time. So in between the inauguration and the consummation, in between the resurrection and the ascension on one hand and what we call the appearing or the second coming on the other hand, for that period of time in between, the kingdom is already here but not yet here. There's plenty of parables that talk about already but not yet. Now the idea is this, that the presence of the gifts of the Spirit are the provision for the church to work in in between the already and the not yet. And the gifts of the Spirit are God's provision for the church while it waits for the appearing of Jesus. Those are the plain statements in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 4 to 8. The problem that the Corinthians had is they believed that he already arrived because they spoke in tongues and therefore they were already even equal with angels. However, true spirituality is not how much you speak in tongues, though Paul wants to encourage people to speak in tongues. True spirituality is more living your life in the light of the resurrection that is still to come. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15, about the resurrection of the body, immediately follows the discussion of the gifts in chapters 12, 13, and 14. True spirituality is looking for the appearing of Jesus 
true spirituality is looking for his return and you live your life in the light of the coming of the Lord Jesus, the resurrection of the body, the, the judgment to come. And you've got to get that perspective in order to understand the proper context in which the gifts of the Spirit are to be used in the church. But in the interim, the gifts of the Spirit is how God builds the church, how God edifies the church, and how it empowers the church for outreach and for evangelism. It, it is the provision of God to do the work. It's not by might, and it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. It's another study, not going to do it today, but the supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit is a foretaste. You taste the powers of the world to come. It's a down payment, is the earnest of your inheritance. You are sealed with the Spirit. Many metaphors that Paul would use, which means while you're waiting for the Lord to come, he hasn't left you powerless. He anoints you, he gifts you, he equips you with supernatural ability in the interim until Jesus comes. You haven't been left as an orphan. And the presence of the gifts of the Spirit will give you supernatural help that will take you through to get every job done that God wants the church to do. First uh, Corinthians 1 verse 8, it says, Confirm you to the end that you might be blameless. Nobody can say God hasn't given me provision. The mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit with the gifts of the Spirit are God's provision to get the work done. These gifts confirm, gives evidence to the witness concerning Christ. The truth of the gospel was confirmed to the Corinthians by their being enriched in all kinds of spiritual gifts. Where does this concept of cessationism begin? How did that creep into church history? The original first formulated statement of it is actually from John Calvin one of the leaders of the Reformation. John Calvin, as you know, a leader of the Reformation, really had problems from the Roman Catholic Church. These didn't see eye to eye on anything. And it was, it was a serious life and death battle. That Now, the Catholic Church was losing a lot of its members to the Reformation, and they developed a strategy to entice people back under their authority of the Catholic Church. And one of the things that the, the Pope did was that he appealed to the presence of miracles in the Catholic Church. Supernatural happenings. And they said these miracles are necessary uh, for new faith and necessary to persuade people to come back to the Catholic Church. For example, somebody might have been healed if they had touched the relics of some dead saint. And they were healed, and they, they said that we have this presence of miracles. And then, you reformers, what have you got? And there was a challenge to the leaders of the Reformation to produce miracles. Well, since they weren't producing miracles, since that wasn't part of the Protestant agenda... They had to counter this challenge uh, from the Catholic Church. And so what they did is they attacked the doctrine of apostolic succession. 
by which the Catholics believed that the Pope was an office that you could trace all the way back to Peter. Peter being the first Pope, then handed down. And the idea was this, that the, since the Catholic Pope would be infallible, and he could write traditions, and he could write statements, and those statements would have the equal authority of Scripture. That's how they understood it. He had the ability to write Scripture, and the tradition has equal value with Scripture. And the, according to the Catholic way of thinking, and the proof that he had that ability to write tradition equal with Scripture, well, look at the miracles. God confirms it with miracles. So, the Protestants had to deal with that, and so they, they responded with the following statements. They responded saying, the role of the Apostle was completed at the end of the first century. There is no such thing as apostolic succession. And in making that statement, then they limited the role of the apostle and the prophet to the first century, to that first generation of people uh, within hearing the initial gospel. And since the scripture has been completed, and there's no more need to write any more scripture, since we have the full canon of the New Testament is complete and nothing else can be added, since there's no one given that authority to write any more scripture, then there's no need for apostles. And the reasoning went with John Calvin, and therefore there's no need of miracles either to confirm somebody to write scripture, because there's nobody around to write scripture anymore, therefore there's no more need of miracles to support and give them credence. You follow? Did you follow all that? And therefore, in the midst of the Protestant move, uh, they put all of charismatic activity back to the first century. End of story. Now we have the Bible. No more scripture being added. No more confirmations needed. And they threw out the baby with the bathwater on that one. In other words, his response was basically that gifts, miracle gifts and prophecy disappeared after a period of time. No apostles were alive anymore. Nobody could possibly add to the scriptures. Thus, cessationism was born during the Protestant Reformation. This teaching later was made very famous by a man named Benjamin Warfield. Benjamin Warfield was a professor at a place called Princeton Seminary and he viewed himself emphatically as a, a full Calvinist. Uh, his writings, he has books called Counterfeit Miracles and he has all sorts of things uh, to prove and he gave his life devoted, well that might be extreme, but he was very, very strong on saying uh, it's, it's, it's all over in the first century. And he became very influential over most evangelical churches uh, and so forth. But to follow the teaching of Benjamin Warfield 
will take us away from what we want to speak about today. But he made it very, very popular and very famous and became deeply, deeply, deeply entrenched in the evangelical church that no manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit are to be expected. There are four passages that have created a lot of confusion about this, and I want to go through them with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 to 13, is a passage that a cessationist wants to bring up and will argue considerably from this this passage more than anywhere. Let's just read it. Chapter 13, 8 to 13. Charity or love never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they will cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will be done away. When as I was a child, I spoke as a child, understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Now abides faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. These verses are used by the cessationist to teach that when that which is perfect is come, that that which is in part is done away. That which is perfect to them is the completed New Testament. Now that we have all the books of the New Testament written and they're accepted as the authoritative scriptures, the authoritative word of God, that which is perfect is come, and therefore tongues is no more needed, prophecy is no more needed. I don't know where they, they never go on to say that knowledge is no more needed. They kind of pick and choose what's needed and what's not needed out of that verse. Um, that the church is now more mature than when it only had spiritual gifts, when God was healing the sick and raising the dead and cleansing lepers and blind eyes being opened, that was the church's in, in its immaturity. Now that we have the scriptures and there's no more miracles, now we're mature. Um, give me immaturity. <laughs> that kind of thinking. That's just a silliness. Um, that now that we have the scripture is more mature than relying on spiritual gifts. So the reasoning goes. Well, it is true that there is a temporal setting to the gifts of the Spirit. And it is true that they will cease one day. That happens when that which is perfect has come. The question is, what does it mean, that which is perfect? I don't think it's really hard to figure that out. You really have to come to an agenda to make this say what it doesn't say. That which is perfect is referring to the appearing of Jesus. Called the second coming. That's when we see him face to face. It certainly cannot mean the creation of the New Testament. Because Paul himself wasn't even aware of it. But he was writing the New Testament when he wrote that. That's part of the New Testament that he wrote. In this passage, Paul is contrasting between now 
and then. He's contrasting present experience with the future. He says, now we see in a mirror dimly. Then we see face to face. Now we're looking at a reflection. Then we will see reality. Now we're looking at a photograph. Then we'll see the person in person. What does it mean face to face? 2 John verse 12. John says, Now I'm writing you with ink and paper, but I want to talk to you face to face. 3 John verse 14 would say the same thing. Right now it's communicating with letter. I can hardly wait that we can communicate face to face. When it says in chapter 13 and verse 12, then face to face, Paul is using a phrase there that's abundant in the Old Testament. Face to face. You'll find it in, listen to these scriptures. Exodus 33 verse 11. You find it, Numbers 14 verse 14. You find it in Deuteronomy 5 verse 4. You find it in Deuteronomy 34 verse 10. You find it in Genesis 32 and verse 30. And what that means is a personal face-to-face encounter with God himself. This is a reference to the appearing of Jesus when you will see him face-to-face. When that which is perfect has come, is that face-to-face knowledge of Jesus that takes place at the resurrection, at the appearing of Jesus. Now we walk by faith, 2 Corinthians 5-7, and not by sight. But when Jesus appears, faith will give way to sight. What a wonderful thought that is. You see, in the interim, before Jesus comes back, Before he comes back, we've got sin is still present as a power in this world. The gifts of the Spirit are a foretaste, a touch. The gift of healing, which we're going to dominate on shortly here, praying for the sick, the gift of healing will be useless after the resurrection. Which one will need healing when you have a resurrected body? The word of knowledge will be not needed after the appearing of Jesus because the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Who needs the word of knowledge after Jesus comes? Who needs the gift of healing? Who needs a miracle? After Jesus comes, when you're glorified, when you have this resurrected, glorified body, when Jesus has put away sin as a power from out of creation at his appearing, none of the gifts will be needed. So we could say that the gifts of the Spirit are how the Holy Spirit manifests himself in the present time, waiting for the appearing of Jesus. And after Jesus appears, all this is unnecessary. But right now, until Jesus appears, they're very necessary. We can't do without them. They are the tools that God 
has given. Let me just finish this thought out of 1 Corinthians and then we'll take a, a, a short break. Let me just finish this first thought out of Corinthians here. Chapter 13 uses the word, they will cease, they will fail, they will vanish away, they will be done away. Let me show you those words in the context of all of 1 Corinthians. There's a lot of things that will cease besides the gifts of the Spirit. Let me show you some of the things that also will cease. Chapter 1, verse 28, says this. Um, base things of the world, things which are despised as God chosen, yea, and things that are which are not, to bring to nothing things that are. All the wisdom of this world, all the power systems of this world, all the people who are mighty in the secular world system, they'll be brought to nothing. They'll be vanished. They'll be done away with. When is that going to happen? When is that going to happen? Chapter 2 and verse number 6. It says, How be it we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world, which come to nothing. When is that going to happen? Already come to nothing, but they still exist. When will they be put away? Chapter 6 and verse number 13. It says, uh, Meats for the belly. And belly for meats, but God will destroy both it and them. Well, when are you going to get your resurrected body? When it says destroy, that means they're going to be va- it's going to vanish away. It's going to be done away with. When's that going to happen? At, obviously, the resurrection. Chapter 15, verse number 24. Then comes the end. I like that one. What's he talking about? What's 1 Corinthians 15? It's the appearing of Jesus accompanied with the resurrection of our bodies to immortality. It says, then comes the end when he's delivered the kingdom up, delivered up the kingdom to God and the Father. When he will put down, you see that word put down? That means bring to nothing, bring to naught. It's the same Greek word. He will cause to vanish from this earth all rule, authority, and power. When does that happen? Obviously, at the appearing of Jesus. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed, that word destroyed, is brought to nothing, vanish, fail. It's the same word. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. When does that happen? That's the appearing of Jesus. That's the resurrection of the body. And again, chapter 7, verse number 31, it says, And they that use this world is not abusing it, For the fashion of this world is passing away. That word passing away is the same word. It will cease, it will fail, it will come to nothing. So there's a lot of things going to come to nothing on that day. The powers of this world will come to nothing. The princes of this world will come to nothing. The power systems of this world will come to nothing. Our physical, natural bodies, as we know them now, will come to an end and they will be transformed. The wisdom of this world will come to nothing. This whole world will come to nothing. And the gifts of the Spirit at the same time will be done away with at that point. But until then, until then, we need the power of God. Amen? So the reference in 1 Corinthians 13, that which is perfect has come, cannot possibly mean the Scriptures. It means the appearing of Jesus Christ. 
If that which is perfect has already come in the form of the scripture, then I suppose nobody should ever be deceived. If that which is perfect has already come in the form of the scripture, I guess we always offer perfect worship to the Lord every time, don't we? If that which is perfect has come, I guess you never get it wrong when you pray. Because that which is perfect has already come. I suppose you know how to perfectly pray about every person, every situation, without bias and without prejudice. Right? That which is perfect has come. In this passage, that's being sarcastic if you didn't note. In this passage, Paul says tongues and prophecy will pass away, but he also says knowledge will. And yet nobody wants to admit that we don't need knowledge today. If tongues and prophecy has gone, passed away, then so has knowledge. And nobody wants to admit that. Has knowledge been rendered inactive? Is it unemployed? Is knowledge inoperative? Has knowledge got no place in our lives? What is true of knowledge has to be true of tongues and prophecy as well. So there you go, part one. Part one on gifts of the Spirit.